0: We actually, when we had the team dinner, we went to this grill chain that had a place just near the, the venue. And Manguchi was aghast once again at just how much greasy food all of these uh, disgusting Americans were eating. Yeah, <laughs> which coming from a country whose main food groups are pasta and
1: you know lettuce of some variety is uh, a change of pace for sure. I mean, I don't know. Manguchi has posted a variety of things, but it, it certainly is more like pasta heavy than just grease and like red meat heavy I guess.
0: Oh yeah, I mean if anyone can demonstrate their range when it comes to cooking then Muguchi has got to be up there but uh, the rest of us did not actually uh, (laughs) (laughs) demonstrate that range this weekend
1: Hey everyone Welcome to episode 303 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. I'm your host, Chris Apple. Lee is out today, but uh, fortunately, I did get pro tour semi-finalist dom harvey to come hang out for no like no particular timing reason just happened to work out great that way so you know yeah i, I
0: think the timing here is that uh, jarvis was on the show recently and uh I, I don't want jarvis to have more lifetime appearances than me and so i, I just put my foot down and insisted that i be uh, uh, allowed
1: back in the saddle again and i said no and then he said well what if i top eight a pro tour and i said well you know i guess i'd have to have to let you on in that case so here we are yeah they they just let anyone do that these days but uh very good
0: to be uh back uh we'll miss lee of course and miss lee's little hey chris to start things
1: off but uh i I will uh, add what i can in his absence i think that's a good substitute so I, i think we got it we have all the ingredients dom i mean congratulations first off i am so happy for you
0: thank you I, I it's still hard to process and i part of me is still convinced that this is some like elaborate nathan fielder skit that is gonna come crumbling down before too long <laughs> uh but for, for now what i believe is real I'm,
1: I'm gonna take it for what it is as far as i know you did actually uh top four of the pro tour with amulet with your signature modern deck so it like kind of couldn't be any more romantic i guess it's it's a, it's a nice moment Definitely. And, and I think that leaving my own
0: investment in it aside, I think some story like that is what you need to have at the Modern Pro Tour because for as much as you have the Modern Horizons cards, uh, now the MH2 cards, and also Lord of the Rings kind of <laughs> slash MH3, depending on uh, how you view its impact. It surprisingly kind of got there. Yeah, didn't it? Yeah. You, you have all of that affecting things, but you do also need to have some nod to the format's deep history and the reason that uh people love it so much and one of those reasons is you can just kind of play the same deck and lovingly develop it and master it over the course of many years there aren't that many decks that have survived all of these upheavals in modern and funnily enough maybe the best survivor of all is Tron which uh, is not really the Mm -hmm. hero of that story but (laughs) certainly is a central character in this one but to see someone makes such a deep run with their pet deck whether it's me or whether it's uh you know the the merfolk guy who I went Aiden 2 with merfolk which i know there's people out there overjoyed about that i think some kind of story like that was key to this tournament being i think as successful as it was uh even alongside all of the other uh
1: stories going on there yeah i i agree completely unfortunately merfolk guy was not able to combine it with a winning draft record which is pretty key to to doing well at the pro tour but there's there's like a million things we can talk about there's a lot of things that i can ask about i guess i just sort of want to go through the process from the beginning like from the outside and and i i feel like i am in touch with the peripheries of a bunch of different like pro tour testing groups and stuff my impression for several weeks going into the pro tour is that nobody could find any deck that they were confident in as like this is a good deck in the format
0: yeah this one felt like the parameters were pretty well known uh and sometimes that's because there's just an obvious broken deck that affects everything. So the last modern PC, also in Barcelona, Hogak was you You either had to beat it or join it and you actually couldn't really beat it as it turned out. So you, you mostly had to join it. But if you didn't come very well prepared for Hogak, then you were not actually participating in the tournament. This time around, there was this consensus that Radius Evoke, Chris, was going to be the most popular deck. And sure enough, that proved to be true. Um, and you knew what some of the other top six or seven decks were going to be uh but yeah there there was no sense that there's either one s tier deck that is warping everything else or that there is some something waiting just lurking beneath the ice uh waiting to be broken And, and so it felt like a lot of the innovation was going to come uh in finding good builds of those established decks and i think that's basically what happened so whether it's the the handshake tron list which i can accidentally claim a little credit for which maybe we'll get into or Ooh, uh, yeah. the, the the rhinos decks which a few different teams brought so the four color one and then also uh, the team list that uh, kai uh, you know got a fourth decade's worth of proto top with <laughs> um, I, I think that that's mostly where the innovation came this time around it wasn't deck choice so much as uh card choices on the margins
1: yeah. And I mean, that is exactly what it looked like from watching the coverage, you know, no deck popped up that it was like, oh, yeah, interesting. I've, I've never seen. it was decks from several different eras of the, the past uh, of the existence of modern like we ha- we have Tron, a classic of the format. We have Amulet in the top eight, and, but most of the tournament and a lot of our feature matches included Scam, Tron or, or Rhinos was kind of unavoidable uh by the end of day one first second and third in the tournament were tron and uh that stayed true through through to the end of day two where our uh, top seeds were all tron decks pretty remarkable Th- the format goes through like undulations and changes but basically every time a modern pro tour rolls around uh tron becomes good again for for like a week span in time
0: It's very funny too because it often performs a lot worse at these lower stakes events in the interim where the format's a bit wider and there's maybe some more uh, linear combo or some of these decks which are not that good in general but happen to line up well against Tron but for whatever reason and maybe there is some deeper structural thing built in there when you have the better players in the game really focusing on the format and the format narrows a bit that creates these ideal conditions for Tron to thrive and we have two back-to-back modern pts four years apart where that has happened now and then the one before that with the introduction of the london mulligan that benefited tron maybe more than any other deck and sure enough tron Mm -hmm. had a great weekend there and then even before that uh it's you know luis salvato was winning the pt with lantern right easy to forget now that yuya now (laughs) forever etching infamy narrowly missed out top eighting on that tournament with tron and so now you go back and you think well with those. Oh, is this marked as well? Or, you know, it, there's a, a tough conversation there to be had, perhaps. But I, I think Tron just has always been at least a good deck in modern. And if you had bought into Tron 10 years ago and you decided, all right, this is going to be my modern deck, that is the best investment you could have possibly made in the format, I think, at this
1: point. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, especially if you are playing it, as you said, at these like high levels of play where format focuses down. Especially if you have a good group and you figure out how to build your Tron deck. And now, you know, like, Calcano played a much closer to traditional build. But, oh baby, that handshake build of the deck is... I I don't... You know, the Tron deck has been kind of... uh, At least the core 40-something-ish cards have been kind of etched in stone since... Was it, like, Micron? the the like first like iteration of mono green tron but now we're getting some interesting stuff you know like chromatic star less good because of void then we even trim like a sylvan scrying we put some urza's sagas in there to contest the counterspell decks we have dismembers for killing like furies and things like that and it, it we're just like the deck Ended up like kind of hyper focused on the PT metagame, but really cool to see what some like intelligent, thoughtful players can come up with when they kind of like uh free themselves from the shackles of the traditional builds.
0: There are uh heated debates going on over who in fact invented Tron, so I will leave that to uh Twitter (laughs) aka X to uh determine for us, but uh I I think Tron is one of those decks which uh like burn and like some other decks is quite poorly served by a lot of the people who play it at lower stakes a lot of the time. And so it has a reputation as a luck deck as have you ever put it on his podcast? I'm uh, excited to hear uh, his breakdown <laughs> of the tournament, but I think there always has been this sense that like, if you build Tron and play it properly, then there is an edge to be gained there. And you saw that the last time around where on the same weekend, you know, I, I won an opening Columbus with Tron and then mm-hmm. across the Atlantic, uh, you know Severin was winning the Pro Tour with Tron and that was a good choice for the weekend uh, in a way that I don't think it actually was like on the weekends either side of that but if you were someone who you play Tron because you love Tron uh, and maybe your whole personality is, is playing Tron in modern you're maybe not equipped to recognize when to put your foot on that pedal when to take it off and maybe also not to build your deck in a way that reflects the contact the least of that being being true
1: right if you keep if you keep registering for karn liberated forever then even when the the tron weekend comes around then you're you're not going to be on well, the train I,
0: I remember uh rain uh, aka uh, autumn taking a lot of people by surprise when they were one of the first to do that at some modern gp way back when and that was one of the sacred cows of the deck and once once that domino fell well you, you start to wonder like how many of these mm-hmm. other cards actually are part of the core as opposed to just the things that we've been taking for granted because that's what everyone else does. And so if you told me that Tron with less than four Sylvan Scryings and only five total chromatic effects was going to do this well, that that really would have taken me by surprise. I would have thought at that point you either just go fully colorless or you go with a traditional setup and to kind of meet it in the middle was a pretty big leap
1: forward. Yeah, for sure. The MTG Grindcast, the tronniest podcast <laughs> in all of Central North Carolina. Not the deck that you played this weekend. So I kind of want to walk through your kind of deck selection journey. I know the amulet is always in the back of your mind. as like something that you can fall back on if the conditions are okay for it. How did you... Did it feel like... A, a loss did it feel like you, you failed by ending up registering amulet or did you think you kind of figured something out and and this was really giving you your best shot possible
0: i did come close to playing tron myself i was i was waffling up towards the the dex submission deadline and my list uh, as it turns out would have not taken that big leap that the handshake guys did with the the, the fewer than four scryings and so on, but would have had some of the mm-hmm. other components that we would have showed
1: up and compared notes and realized, oh wait, we've been accidentally like copying each other's homework here. Yeah, I think if you recognized like that Oblivion Stone and Worm Coil Engine are go- are like some of the best cards or some of the best they've been in Tron, then you're like getting fifty percent of the way there, right? So yeah,
0: so so to to touch on Tron quickly, so I think the big realization that you need to make is that especially with the Run Ring, you now are capable of actually executing your plan and winning games reliably when you don't have Tron or when you, you have Tron, but it gets broken up or when you're not going to have Tron on turn three, turn four, every game. And so you don't need to be going down to five cards or four cards the way we were a few years ago just to make sure you have Tron into big con or little Khan on turn three, every game, you can actually afford to play mm-hmm. this more normalized game. where you have the same top end where sometimes, yeah, you have two Tron pieces and a map and a payoff and you just steamroll over them. But you can also just play a ring, play a stone, play a khan, take it slow, uh, and win those games as well. And so once you do that, once you lean into that angle more, you can do that with stuff like the Talismans, which they got to, or Warping Whale, or other ways to just generate uh, generate extra mana outside of I have these uh, specific three lands in play. Um, and Urza Saga, once you realize that it does that too, it makes a lot of sense to double down there because one of the play patterns with that card is sometimes you just win without ever assembling Tron, uh, you you play out your stars and your maps and so on, these are additional cheap artifacts to make your contracts even bigger, and so they have to deal with those, and the cards that deal with uh, those effectively, firstly not really being played right now, so there were zero dress downs at the top tables of this tournament as far as I could tell, but even those cards, they don't even do anything against the entire rest of the Tron deck right? So you, you could right. you need these cards to clean up the mess from an Urza Saga. Uh, but if you're spending two fatal pushes or something doing that, you, you feel like you have to. But also, if you draw those against the the Ulamog draws or the Khan draws, then uh, they just won't do anything for you. Uh, but the, the, the way it ties into the rest of your plan is that, let's say you Saga on one, uh, on your turn three, or two turns down the line, whenever that happens to be, When the saga would pop off, you float the mana from that, you find a map, you find the missing Tron piece, and now you can't get to six or seven that turn, but you can get to four or five. And now in a world where you have the ring and activating Oblivion Stone, maybe some other cards too, alongside Khan the Great Creator as things to do with four or five mana well that justifies that sequencing because once you use that turn to bridge with the next turn then you have all the mana in the world and you can cast whatever big thing
1: uh you're, you're pairing with that so so you know you got much of the way there with tron but what brought you back to amulet for this tournament i, I think in my heart of hearts i always knew it was going to play out this way um there, there was a <laughs>
0: romantic quality to getting to play with a deck which, yeah, I know better than any other and which I know better than almost anybody else. Uh, they it Coverage made a lot of the fact that I had written the Bible on the deck and it, it makes sense as a coverage storyline, but I think there is also some truth to that infamous Amulet copy-passer of, yeah, okay, if Hogak is the best deck or Valkyrie is the best deck or something, you should be playing those instead. But when the format is in a more normalised space, Amulet is both powerful enough and customizable enough that it it probably is a decent choice. And for me specifically, playing that deck at, I'm not going to say I'm close to optimal, but playing that deck at a high level is going to serve me better than, you know, I thought Hammer was actually a very smart choice for this weekend, for example. But uh, my lack of Hammer experience over the past few years definitely would have showed if I decided to register this at the highest level of the game. So in the absence of a clear other option... Uh, I, I tried Scam, uh, I tried Tron, like I said, I tried the, the Grinding Breach deck, which had a horrible weekend at the PT itself, but strangely dominated the a lot of the side events taking place on the same weekend. Uh, I, I tried <laughs> some other stuff. I, I'd like to think I did my due diligence, but I, I put myself in this awkward position of if any one of those decks had jumped out as a good choice, I, I'd left it late enough that I couldn't really optimize those decks to where I'd want them to be, but also... I'd introduced enough doubt into my process that I was questioning my own choice of Amulet and also not giving myself a chance to uh, test some of the more radical things there that I never got a chance to, like Lotus Field, for example. And so I might have been better served just locking in Amulet a month before, as I think realistically I kind of had done subconsciously anyway, and just embracing that and running with it as opposed to going on this wild goose
1: chase that only served to uh, leave me down in myself. I mean, did you, do you think you gave up any percentage or anything by, you know, what would additional time on Amulet have done? Do you think your list could have ended up any different? Do you think just, like, you'd be even more polished with, like, I, I guess, I'm just not sure that I see the, the cost there, really.
0: Yeah, it, it's possible. So when I was comparing notes with uh, Tristan and Simon from Handshake, they mentioned that in their quest to beat Scam, they were trying this list that had just four Generous ends main deck and a bunch of Castle Uh And so the idea there is <laughs> you can always find your forest and then your castle is always coming to play untapped. And now you have even more good things to cast with your castle ahead of time and that sets you up really nicely against Scam in particular, but also some of these other blood moon decks. Your Living End matchup, it turns out, gets a lot better when you just have four main deck Generous End. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. so that, I don't know if I would have got all the way there, but i like to think I would have tried more stuff like that, and maybe I would have ended up just registering what I did anyway within a few cards, but i like to think I would have done more work on the outskirts
1: like that. Well, I mean, scoreboard, so... I think it it ended up just fine. Oh, no
0: no complaints. But, you know, just in terms of uh, refining the process for next time, there's
1: still a way to go. Yeah, there's always more to learn. Uh, as far as your build itself, I, you know, we don't have to spend too much time just delving into the minutiae of amulet deck building. There's a whole you know book that you've written about that but as far as applying the information in in the book and in your head to building the deck for this tournament you know stuff that would stand out to people looking at it 61 cards i I think nasif is the only other uh 61 card top eight per top eight list but you know, we had to fit a gemstone caverns in there. I guess we
0: we, we sure did. Yeah, I, th- there are some decks from the very early days where no one understood how to build decks properly that uh, had sixty-one cards and more. Or th- th- that was not even the most notable thing about them. But yeah, in the the more modern era of deck building, which Nassif's win is fourteen years ago at this point, but you, you get what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, it, it is right. a rarity, and at this point, it's it's more of a signature than anything else. And I do it because I think the cost is relatively low. I think there are some decks, and I don't necessarily lump Amulet in there, but where I think it is legitimately optimal to run more than 60, so some of these Legacy Toolbox decks, for example, uh, with Green Sun, Zenith, and so on. With Amulet, you are reliant enough on your namesake cards that decreasing the chance to draw those, especially in an opener, by even a little bit does uh, bear a significant cost. Uh, But the fact that this is the first thing that people gravitate towards and their eyes just jump out on source. They, they can't fathom that anyone will play the, the 61st card <laughs> when actually, like, the math there just... It doesn't swing things that much. I, I think my, my favorite reaction was semi-61 card list got published a while back and he said, well, yeah, your logic makes sense, but you're a carrot. You, sh- you should be playing 63 or 64 if this is the, the rabbit hole you're going down. And I, I can't argue with that, right? Like, I, I can't really respond. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> at, at some point, then, you have... Four amulets and four Urza sagas out of 60, you know, at at some point it breaks down. It it does. When
0: Yorion was legal, uh, people would meme around with Yorion amulet, and that was never correct, but there was some temptation to doing it just so you could fit in all of the obscure one of toolbox lands which maybe you'd have to sideboard otherwise so you know i I had the the county garden and the radiant fountain and the Bajuka bog uh in my sideboard for the tournament there are spots where you want all of those in your main deck uh, sometimes together but it's just very hard to fit everything even in a deck that can support 30 to 35 lands uh or something like that so uh there there is some case for it uh it is (laughs) it's funny to me when people ask which card they should cut so that they can p- copy the rest of the list where if you put enough faith in me that the other 60 cards are where they want to be <laughs> then you're, you're you're so stunned by my error in registering a 61st so just go with it at this point or pick something at random i'm not going to tell you what to do
1: well something yeah there, there's a list of cards you can't take out but yeah sure yeah i realistically it is the the gems and
0: caverns and that one is superfluous but i think it does add this Key dimension to the deck. And it's a card which honestly should see a lot more modern play. And it's something that a lot of people flirted with for this tournament. I think. I don't know if Nassif actually registered it in the end, but he was talking about playing one in his living end sideboard. Obviously it's pretty stocking rhinos at this point, but in Tron, I, I think it's it's worth a look. And in mm-hmm. almost any deck where the The possibility of having to play it as a colorless land does not derail you actually casting uh, the rest of your spells.
1: Yeah, so Kai's Rhino's deck had, I I believe, triple Gemstone Caverns in there. And I think that also, uh, I've heard that much of the Discord conversation during the Pro Tour was him complaining how he didn't put Gemstone Caverns into play with a luck counter a single time in this like swiss of the tournament yeah so just running around with a bunch with three copies of legendary wastes in your deck is is but you know somehow managed to top eight the pro tour in spite of
0: that they, they were joking that it could have just been a mutiful which i guess is technically a rhino but also is a wizard for your cyborg <laughs> flame of Enor, which i think was mm-hmm. one of the more important innovations for that deck actually and it can attack for two or block sometimes you know if you, if you have to get scrappy
1: sure Uh, As far as the rest of your deck building goes... You know, I, I don't have enough, like, amulet experience to pick out, like, oh, this is this is an interesting... Because it's more about, like, the lands that don't make it to the main deck, I guess, is, like, the the main amulet building experience. But, you know, stuff that I do notice about the list is, you know, three dismembers in the sideboard, the Terra Sunders, a worm coil engine in the sideboard, and then, you know, just various... Uh, also, like, low on endurance is only a single endurance and a single Tormod's Crypt in the sideboard along with you know a bajuca bog for graveyard hate so uh if you want to just quickly talk about the decision-making process that went into like this configuration here
0: yeah I-, I didn't expect a ton of living end ultimately and that that turned out to be true if this tournament had been held a month ago when Living End was, I think, justifiably all the rage, then I would have wanted at least another two hate cards or so uh, in the sideboard just dedicated for that matchup. The tournament script was a last-minute addition for that role, just in case. Uh, you know, I, I knew Nassif was working with CFB, had been a fan of Living End in the past, and the, these PTs are small enough these days that if... Uh, one person gets most of one team on one deck, well suddenly it can go from 4% to 8% uh, in a heartbeat. Sure. So uh, I thought that in case there was more Living End than I expected, having the Tormor script, which is more narrow than some of the other Graveyard Hate options, but is, I think, better against livian specifically because it's it's free so it's easier to work into your sequencing Can find it b- with both oza and talaria west which can come up sometimes yeah ha- having a, a more diverse spread of graveyard hate would make sense there if i expected more living end and i don't know if i should now after the pt but uh you you can play more endurances more Ents even uh, i had 2 Ent n1 endurance <laughs> for a bit uh you you can uh fit all the numbers there i was reluctant to cut the blue splash entirely from the sideboard so I still have the one swan song and the one patch negation. Uh, Swan song was nice in the past when decks like Creativity were more popular because it was good there but also could cover you against all of the cascade decks at once and then also any just random spell based combo deck that snuck its way in there. Uh, So you could double down on that again maybe but uh, I thought there wouldn't be that much living in for this tournament and that was right. I didn't expect this much Rhinos and I maybe should have expected more. I think the consensus was that rhinos was uh good against scam and that was not my experience from the scam side going back to when i was playing a lot of scam at the start of the year and so i thought that uh if the the scam list really cared about the matchup then that would bear out and at that point i'm not sure what you're hoping to beat with your rhinos deck if maybe four color is tricky living in notoriously is very difficult like what are you hoping to prey upon uh i, I do think the tron matchup is is bad if the tron decks are, are built well as well unless you have a ton of hate like my teammates did um it turns out that if you build your rhino deck properly and i think these builds will become more stock now going forward then that matchup probably mm-hmm. is in fact good still not massively favored i don't think rhinos has any matchups that really are very ahead or very behind other than maybe yorkmoth which it turns out just kind of sucks against everything <laughs> as much as i hate to say that
1: um yeah then
0: that it may maybe the uptick in rhinos makes sense so that accounts for the Tormon script. The Dismembers, I think, are just the best card against Scam, also a good card to have against Yorgmoth, and also a hedge against just Creature Combo. Uh, we, It was leaked that there was a CFB semi-sec, because in... But when Alpha Frog was streaming his mini kind of a uh, cube money matches and stuff, at some point someone just tabbed into a spreadsheet that had a bunch of this information and these pictures and stuff on it. Um, uh. And so th- there was a lot of stuff being leaked that way. Uh, they-, they were not the only uh, victims of that. But uh, just creature combo decks like that, I was messing around with Heliod for a little bit uh, just because... Aureoc champion as a combo piece in your main deck against Scam sounded like a good place to be. Uh, sure. You know, Yorgmoth is good, and maybe there's some other stuff too. Juju Bean, who was on our team, had a very brief Goblins phase that we had to work out of him, and uh, Dismember is really the only thing uh, keeping you in that matchup. So just a good hedge against stuff that may or may not exist. And then the Worm Coil was just another good threat to have that you can cast under Blood Moon against the Ragavan decks. Uh, and specifically, if they have Moon and you respond with the one Ring, it's a colorless threat that you can cast that also stops you dying from that ring that found you the resources to cast it in the first place. Uh, so just a nice additional threat for there and for some of the thoughtsy matchups and so on. Fine against Murk if if that uh, had any presence at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that was necessary, but just felt like a nice one to have. And then the Terra Sunders. Uh, so this required reworking the mana base to support those. You see four Golgari Rotfarm Farm in the list, where usually that's a one off if that just for your sideboard dismembers and. I wanted those because I thought against 4-Color uh, Elishnorn is actually a, a pretty substantial threat that you need a way to deal with because hmm. if the game's going long, both players have a ring, like they will find that Elishnorn eventually and it's going to be really good against you. So you need answers to that. Uh, the the mainnet Odawara uh, is explained in part by that as well. But the Terra Sunder is an answer to Elishnorn that can also blow up their line bindings and meaningfully contest that ring. Uh, you, you don't want to be leaving that one in play even if uh, you can maybe beat it going long uh so just a nice flexible cyber card against four color that can also come in against like tron or hammer or uh, other other
1: saga decks as well gotcha yeah that all makes sense side note one of the other pieces of tech that got leaked in that specific event was nico boney's i don't know if it was just his but but that stood out to me when i was browsing (laughs) the deck lists (laughs) their four color rhino list included a, a Drannith Magistrate transformative sideboard plan for only the Living End matchup where you, you swap out your crashing footfalls, you bring in Drannith Magistrates, you cascade into them, and then you get to play a totally different type of game post-board versus what is probably your worst matchup. I don't know that it's like reasonably possible for rhinos to be living and otherwise yeah that,
0: once they were kind enough to uh leak that to us uh we uh i think that the rhinos <laughs> faction of our
1: team had a, a quicker uh, powwow on that one jarvis and i like stumbled on that we're kind of like flipping out about it and then like five minutes later somebody in chat posts like uh that nasif got paired or, or maybe i was talking to, to nick about this but anyways like five minutes later we see that nasif got Paired against Nico Boni and then like 15 minutes later we got the report that uh the sideboard plan had in fact worked and Nassif had fallen to Nico Boni in in one of his best matchups other hilarious cascade sideboard plans that have popped up recently as well I tried out uh the Tristan Wild LaRue living end 75 that he top aided the sunday ptq with one that you you did not have to compete in because you were you were busy battling on the sunday <laughs> stage this was a living end deck with three sanctifier NVEX in the sideboard as your i don't want to play living end against recto's plan which is cute but it doesn't I don't think it's actually better than just playing regular Living End against rectos because you still just like lose to Dothy Voidwalker at approximately the same rate because you can't you can't block it with Sanctifier and Vec and you just get like aggroed out of the game.
0: Yeah, I, his list transforms into almost more of a Rhino's deck where he has the Bonecrusher Giants and the Brazen Borrowers and can in theory play more of that fair game. As you said though, Sanctifier. Yeah, it's the perfect hate card, but also sometimes the void Walker just attacks through it, or their grief has menace, and so you need a, a, another a Sanctifier potentially, or just something else to jump in the way as well, and that's easier said than done. And then whatever that threat is, is attacking for more than your Sanctifier is attacking them for, and I just don't know if that plan actually works in practice, and especially for an open deckless event where maybe you yeah. can get people with it in the leagues and the challenges but uh if your uh scam opponent knows about it then it's a lot easier to uh to hedge for so uh our our teammate mogd uh who anyone who plays a uh, much moto will, will know that screen name uh having threatened to quit magic after not doing well at the photo <laughs> the day before of course Inevitably won the PTQ, beating Tristan uh, in the quarterfinals there from the Scam side, and yeah, I I would love to believe that that kind of tactic is what you need in the matchup. I'm just not convinced it is yet.
1: If so, honestly, I think that maybe it would work better with Oriak champions in place of the Sanctifiers or something like that. Just like a little bit of life gain in addition to your like unfightable creature, because. You know, just like slowly dying to Dothy Voidwalker as you can't turn around and kill your opponent. I don't know. Probably not enough life gain on on Oriok Champion, but also probably just generally not a good plan because you have to mess up your entire deck building. (laughs) So uh, speaking of Cascade Cyber
0: Plans, uh, one deck I spent approximately like a fifth of a day on before moving on was the Resurgent Belief uh, Cascade deck. Oh, goodness. where, Where that one actually... Because you are base white and because you're set up to hard cast all of your enchantments anyway, that deck actually can do the the sanctify Cyborg Duke if it wants to. And maybe sure. that... Also, alongside the inability of Black Red to just deal with enchantments, like maybe that actually is the secret sauce if you want to go uh, that direction.
1: Right. And then some of your cyclers are like actual cards, like... I, I assume, like, Cast Out or, or like, the other, the, the Blink Oblivion Ring or something like that. I, I have no idea what's in that yeah. deck. But some amount of castable spells and not just, like, a 4-4 a four, four flyer for 4. I,
0: I did also, to complete the circuit, uh, consider a Glimpse with 4 Generous End and 4 Oliphant. Because one of the issues with the Glimpse deck is you, you need to make your land drops uh, as much as possible because those are... Uh, rectangles that get counted for glimpse but also they're pretty bad rectangles to hit with your glimpse for the most part so there's some tension mm-hmm. there and to have a card which is is a guaranteed land drop to get to three mana but then also sometimes your small glimpse just hits uh, a fury and two generous ends and that's just lethal it's like a small living end that, that actually <laughs> uh that deck's fail rate quite a bit not enough to make me register it and Building that deck is a challenge in its own right, but once people were doing that in Living End and in Rhinos, I thought, well, we may as well just try it here, and actually it was as good as advertised.
1: No, and I think it's very clear that the land cyclers are just here to stay as a component of, uh, modern in particular, but, you know, they're doing work in, in Legacy as well. But these, just like one mana is so cheap, and they do so much work by giving you effectively like tap lands that are pitchable spells or that you can just cast at some point in the game or in the case of living end very useful in your graveyard uh and they you know stabilize your deck they up your consistency generally you know not a lot of the the eagles seeing play yet but everything else is is doing something I, somewhere as, as
0: soon as i noted that eagles was uh the one letting the side down almost immediately there was a deck i think in uh it may, may have top challenge or something that was uh score, Eagles, Shining Soul, uh, Shining Shoal, Shining uh, Solitude. Say that five <laughs> times fast. Yeah, that was like okay. Well, clearly we can actually
1: complete the cycle here. Uh, everyone is contributing something. Yeah, but uh, Lorian revealed in particular as a, an important component of Rhinos. Just like really, really shown this weekend, and those cards are are really good.
0: Yeah, I, I so I, I was messing around distracting myself from modern testing by playing in these vintage challenges uh and i built this mono blue one ring control deck where you have force negation and force of will and so you have some seagate restorations just to pad your your blue card count and then uh andreas peterson uh eco brunan uh spoke the challenge the next week just taking my deck and leveling it up by replacing these stinky twenty dollar <laughs> seagate restorations uh with just some lion reveals and it made a lot of sense and it was a lot better and it made the deck a lot better and that's once you you make that mental leap from oh yeah this is just why the dfc's are, are seeing play basically ev- everywhere even in some decks that can't even cast them well these are just better versions of those effects a lot of the time and so yeah the fact that these these now collectively are the third or fourth most impactful cards from uh lord of the rings like actually in retrospect I, we should have seen it coming the whole time yeah i think so
1: and and it, like the the living end Aspect was fairly obvious, but then once you just realize, like, yeah, we can include these as part of our mana base, and they just make our decks better. Like at some point, you hit that, and you're like, oh yeah, I I I should have seen this, especially with Lorian Revealed, because having blue cards to pitch is just so important in, in this format as it exists as it exists right now. Mm-hmm. So why don't we go into sort of the start of the tournament tournament itself? Day one, draft. Uh, not the, you know, you really, really want to start the Pro Tour out on a winning draft record, unfortunately. Your your first draft didn't go quite as smoothly. Uh, do you want to talk about your your draft prep at all? Or how do you feel about Lord of the Rings draft going into the tournament? I, I really liked it.
0: Yeah, I, I reached a point where I was almost more, con- more excited to test and take part in the limited rounds and the constructed rounds, which really was not a position I ever thought I would be in. I thought that... You know, if if I ever had a good constructed finish at a Pro Tour, it would likely be in Modern because that's my bread and butter. But I would be the Murpho guy who is uh, <laughs> going seven three eight two and constructed, and then one in the draft rounds and and uh, wondering what could have been instead. Um, so I, I was actually feeling good about this format. I I think I, I I had a few opinions about it that differed from the consensus and differed from the rest of my team, but. I liked where my testing had got to, although I had to stop testing at a certain point because we found that the the draft leagues on Magic Online that were open to anyone, w- these weird things were happening constantly that made us think that this is just not representative testing for what things are going to be like at the PT. Uh, and you, you were getting like past some NAS goals or whatever much later than anyone should be. And these, these cards would be winning suggesting that even the people in these colors just weren't placing nearly enough respect on them. And it got to the point where I, even though I was winning a lot in the leagues and enjoying it a lot, I just had to make myself stop because I'm going to be drilling these assumptions into my brain that just won't hold up at the PC level. And uh, I think this is even more true for the people drafting on Arena where it felt like it was quite easy to get these decks that had, let's say, three to four birthday escapes or whatever and could really push this tempt angle hard or, or really embrace whatever the theme of your color pair is in a way that at the PT, once people mostly know what's going on, you you, you just can't do that. So that was one evolution over the course of our testing was we started off really high on just any card that had the ring tempt you on it. But it turns out that everyone else was also really high on those (laughs) cards. And so a few weeks in, you couldn't rely on getting the critical mass of those effects in your deck that you needed. And that is something which really does rely on all the cards helping out each other. And if you are getting to chapter two reliably, but not getting to chapter four reliably, well, that makes a really big difference in how your aggro deck, let's say, is able to close out the game effectively. So I found there really were not many good public avenues to enhance your knowledge about the format. Uh, And even people whose limited input I really respect, right? Like I could go to Sam Blackstream, but he's uh, drafting in a context where the other people in the pod are most certainly not Sam Black, and so that's affecting the quality of the decisions that he's being faced with. Same thing with like the ham or the, the other good limited streamers, and also some of the other uh, limited content out there too. So not to name any names, but there was one podcast episode titled something like how to 6 Lord of the Rings <laughs> of the PT or something, and... Within a few minutes, one of the hosts is talking about how, yeah, I, I switched back from Arena to Modo the other day, and I, I couldn't believe how different things felt, like without the hand smoother or something, or playing best of three instead of best of one. And I'm thinking, well, okay, if you're having to issue those disclaimers, you really are not in any place right. to give input to the people playing on this, on this stage at this
1: point. We're looking for the last percentage points here and the absolute like optimization of our decision-making and in the context of all the other seven people at the table know what's up and I'm, my, I'm only going to have 20 playable spells because everybody is hedging and stuff and, and it's just a totally different experience.
0: Yeah, so I, I was keen to get some uh, single elimination drafts done because those are the cues that fit up with the people who... Are the sharks on on the platform was never able to actually coordinate that for myself and then i got a few uh paper drafts with some some good locals in as well but uh going into the house for the few days i was there i was worried that all of the work i'd done up up to that point would just be undermined by the first few actual in-person drafts that i did and i wouldn't have enough time to correct on that turns out like not not a ton had changed by the end had some mixed results in the house but still felt pretty good going into the pc At which point my first draft goes off the rails a little bit because there was no clear open lane and uh, I started off in blue, blue seemed pretty open but then was waffling back and forth between white and red as my second color, ended up in this Jeskai deck where I kind of overcorrected for how bad my mana was by just playing more lands but then I was flooding a ton and that really manifested in in the game so I was off to an O2 start very quickly, not feeling good at all and then had... One of maybe the most miraculous comeback I can remember in my entire time playing Magic in round three to not over the pod <laughs> and destroy myself mentally going into the rest of the day. And coming out of that, I was I was on a bigger high than I would have been if I had 2 1 the pod with just a normal deck with, with no incidents whatsoever, just because I, I'd stared into the abyss and somehow avoided uh, falling into it.
1: Yeah, and that kind of was the start of something, I feel like, because after that, you 4 one Modern and managed to mostly avoid Rakdos. I guess one thing we didn't talk about in your preparation is, you know, one of the reasons to, I guess like two of the things that just somebody not super experienced with amulet would tell you as like, this is why there is no amulet in the modern queues anymore is number one, the Rakdos scam matchup, and number two, sometimes the ring comes down and really messes with the timing of your amulet turn and can just, like, stymie you doing what you want if you wanted to attack for a lot of damage with a hasty titan and maybe they they can, you know, leverage ley line bindings or whatever to get themselves out of that situation. So I guess the main thing that I'm interested in is the, the Rakdos scam matchup. But if you have other thoughts for, like, why Amulet might be better than might have been better than people assumed going into this. Then that's also interesting. The matchup is bad, and I don't think you can make it good
0: unless you maybe take some of those really radical steps, like the Ents and the castles and stuff that I mentioned mm-hmm. before. That being said, I foreod it in the Swiss and was not surprised at the outcome of any of those games, really, just based on how they played out. Um, because the thing that makes it hard to assess. Your scam matchup as as a lot of decks, frankly, is the games are so swingy that you can have what you think is a stable position that just immediately crumbles because they top decked the Fury or the Feigned Death to go with the Fury or something, or the the entire premise of the stand of the scam deck as I see it is you snatch these free wins however you can, you scam the opponent out of what seemed like a stable game. And so if that happens to you, it, it can be hard to distill down. Is this actually something that happens? frequently in the matchup that I need to take seriously or is that just the natural variance inherent in a game that has a bunch of swinging cyborg cards and stuff sure. like that um and that is certainly true in the amulet versus scam matchup where you have a lot of stuff going for you in the matchup but then every single one of those cards can be trumped at a big profit if they have the right stuff against it in their own draw so you know Urza Saga is phenomenal against just the card thought sees in general, good against their spot removal, good against everything else. But if you lead on a Saga and against Blood Moon, well, it dies and then you die, probably. <laughs> or you have a hand that has the nuts rolled up, but they double grief you on turn one and now you just don't have any cards anymore and you die. So uh, if you go back and watch my matches against Scam in the tournament, you'll see me keeping a lot of these hands which don't seem like good hands. And they aren't in the abstract, but they have enough of a varied mix of stuff that I will probably have something going on when the dust settles, and maybe I can parlay that into something. And my chances in the game are going to be more dependent on what's in the top of my deck in three or four turns, and I just want to make sure I have enough resources to hopefully use those once we get to that point. Um, So, the matchup's bad, it's hard to assess exactly how bad it is or what the weaknesses are and how you fix it, You just need a mix of stuff and a coherent plan. And I kind of had that. And so by the time I lost to Jake in the top (laughs) four, I felt like I was overdue to lose the scam. It didn't feel as bad as maybe you would expect, given the stakes. But when I got paired against it on the pairing sheet over and over, like I would refresh melee and the scam deck would pop up. I would think, well, all right, this sucks, but whatever. I'll just beat them. And then I did. Um, It did help that a lot of these scam lists, uh, had moved away from main deck blood moon effects so my feature match against andy uh those were ley lines instead which uh would have made a lot of sense for the last pt (laughs) Barcelona when hogak (laughs) was everywhere and i think DIT was actually a smart call for a scam infested field obviously not so good in in this matchup um and there were a lot of changes like that where game one actually felt like pretty good from the amulet side and then the post cyber games are the ones you have to worry about but that's kind of true with a lot of decks against Gam. So the Living Ends and uh, the, the other decks too. It it felt like, okay, I have a fighting chance here. As opposed to, yeah, I'm just uh, struggling against a Tide from the, the opening of game one.
1: Yeah, I, I think that that is all true. Especially the Blood Moon thing. Like... I, I think that there is a process where you're, when you are putting together your Recto Scam deck for the Pro Tour, and you know that it's going to be, you know, a significant number of mirrors, and also you are enemy number one, and so you've got a target on your back. People are bringing decks that they think function against scam. One of the easiest things to fix in your, like, deck choice or deck building is just making sure that, like, Blood Moon isn't that good against you, just in a broad sense. People can bring decks that don't like get crushed by blood moon blood moon also has no text in the mirror so if the mirror is going to be anything like 15 to 20 percent of the format it loses value there and then if people are playing decks like rhinos with Lorien revealed well you know your blood moon's not going to do anything there either so i think really easy and i think a good call for the most part to just be like i think blood moon is like the least important part of this deck and yeah yeah i think that you can definitely benefit from that and just say i don't know i'll bring a blood moonable deck and and just dodge it yeah I, I think this
0: is something that the tron decks exploited too where blood moon it it is a fine card against tron but uh ask any experienced tron player and they will tell you Blood Moon by itself, unless it's backed up by other forms of pressure, doesn't really do anything. You're going to work through it eventually. And that has never been more true when you have Khan and The Ring and three to four main Oblivion stones. You can just beat a Blood Moon pretty trivially a lot of the time. And so I think cards that actually deal with lands are going to be a better way for Scam to combat Tron moving forward. So stuff like Forminator Mage I've seen discussed where it has both of your colors for your pitch cards. And you can uh, combine it with faint death effects and so on. And it also actually blows up the Urza's Tower instead of just maybe shutting it down for a turn or two. it maybe has some
1: more utility elsewhere against like the mirror or something if you happen to draw it. We've seen an uh, Obsidian Charmaw resurgence as well in like a number of different mm. sideboards.
0: Yeah. So I, I, I knew Scam was my bad
1: matchup, or, or one of them at least.
0: But then if your bad matchup is, let's say... 12 to 15 percent or something but then you like your matchups against the next 30 to 40 percent that seems like a decent place to be uh and looking at the context of the previous modern pro tours the hogak pt hogak itself uh while putting up a band worthy win rate as the known broken deck was only 20-ish percent somehow Mm -hmm. and so looking at that precedent it seemed like well actually it's it's hard for any one deck to be that popular so scam even if it is number one now uh after you know, one of our locals who was a scam expert won a challenge with it and then it just won everything else that weekend and then suddenly it was just everywhere e- even if that trend continues maybe it gets like 15 percent or something turns out it was still a bit higher than that and uh maybe the smaller pt size accounted for that again but in the conversations with just people from other teams or just in our circles we were in touch with it seemed like everyone was talking about how to beat scam, but. Not that many people were planning to just sleeve up Scam themselves. And internally, we had a few people who I think were always gonna play it, but a lot of the people who played Scam did so because it was a last minute switch, you know, 12 hours before deck submission. And so that precedent seemed somewhat encouraging to me. Uh, and so I decided, okay, if I thought Scam was gonna be something obscene, like 25 or 30%, and also the matchup was as bad as advertised, then I would just have to move off. There's nothing I could do about that. Mm-hmm. It seemed like, given the numbers I did expect, it was the gamble I could take, and actually, maybe the matchup isn't so bad after all, (laughs) given my record (laughs) against it. I don't know. But I, I also, when I was considering Tron, I thought, well, all the other decks I'm considering also have somewhat shaky scam matchups, and they're trying to feast on everything else. But also, if people are coming to the same conclusions as me about Tron, about some of these other decks, well, I'm just pretty good against all of those, and so maybe I can if i'm expecting other people to arrive at the same conclusions and i think that's generally a assumption you should make then i can maybe be like the the second level choice it actually looks pretty smart in retrospect the same way sure. that actually i think hammer would have been if i had known how to play it properly for this tournament
1: right well i mean i think you're certainly maximizing your win rate by picking the deck that you know inside and out as your like tier, second tier sec- second level pick I often find myself doing the same thing when I'm, like... I don't know if it's, like, justifying it or whatever, but when I am looking at possible deck choices and I'm like, man, I could play Living End, but it is bad against Scam. And then I just, look look at my other deck choices and I'm like, yep, these are all pretty bad against Scam too, so I guess I'm not getting out of that one. Which is uh, maybe a sign that I need to either broaden my range or just, like, suck it up and start registering Scam in these tournaments, but... (laughs) Well, I I, I remember, yeah, a few RCQ seasons ago,
0: we had this exact conversation, right? where I I think you were saying, I'm going to be a four-color tryhard now, and I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy my my solitudes and my rents, and I'm going to take this seriously. But even if you think four-color was the best deck then, which no Mm. need to litigate now, you playing living end at somewhere close to optimal capacity for you... Probably still going to be a better call than trying to muddle your way through four color and not being that happy about it, especially if, dear God, if there are mirrors or something, right? And then, as I think the law goes, you just want to RCQ very easily with Living End.
1: Uh, no, I won an RCQ very easily with 4-Color right after that. Oh, well, <laughs> okay, it was, well... <laughs> it was it was gimmicky 4-Color, though, where I didn't have to worry about having optimal play patterns because I was like Eldritch Evolutioning into Elish Norton the weekend that Elish Norton yes. like, came out and nobody knew how to play against it yet. So, you know, we, we dodged a lot of the difficulties in, in that particular RCQ season. Yes, I, I may have been uh,
0: crossing my streams there, but I, I, I think that kind of conversation is very common and what i would say to people who do want to broaden their range and not just be a one trick is try and have a second trick that is good when your what your first trick is bad so right uh, if it makes sense for you to play living end then yeah go ahead and play living end but ideally your second deck should have a matchup profile that makes it a good choice when living end is bad so if you're scared of a bunch of uh scam and four color or something then play a deck that you think is good against those as opposed to a deck that just is good when living in is good and bad when living in is bad.
1: Yeah, that and I guess, you know, kind of my secondary deck at this point for that circumstance is like Demir Ring, but boy, what a what a mopey deck to choose. Like it certainly solves hmm. that exact thing, but it's also just a very mopey deck.
0: It, it is, and going into this tournament, that was the big wild card, I think, because it had just broken up on, on Magic Online. Hadn't really been stress tested in the arena of the PC itself, and so it's also a hard control deck of sorts in a format where those decks historically mm-hmm. have been pretty bad, and also at the PC level, those decks have not done well either. Like thinking back to London and Barcelona and so on from last time, like if you're making that choice, you're making a pretty bold statement about what you think the format is going to look like, and. I don't think anybody who registered that deck expected a, for, a field that was 12% Tron, including most of the best players in the room. I kind of did, but yeah, that, that's a, a way you can get blindsided is Tron versus Control historically. One of the most lopsided matchups in modern
1: going for back a sure. decade or more. Uh, Especially once they put two Urza Sagas in their deck. Like that's just yeah. not beatable for your Force of Negation deck. Well, well, that was one of the big picture
0: insights for this weekend, was that the card Urza Saga seems strangely well positioned, but there's just no good Urza Saga deck to play it. If you think that, well, Hammers off the table, and you don't uh, put it in Tron, and you think that only weirdos like Dom are going to play Amulet, (laughs) like what Saga deck is really left? Turns out that uh, the answer just is Tron, and the fact that this was not a Saga deck always seemed very strange to me, because... I think literally the first deck I 5 owed with when MH2 came out, just to prove a point, was Tron with four <laughs> Urza sliders, just was maximizing how many Urza lands you could fit in the deck. Perfect. Uh, though, sadly, did not have Urza's Factory, I think. It just seemed like at least the first copy should be a very natural uh, con- inclusion, and yet very few of the lists in the two years since then have included that card. I think once you try it, you see the appeal right away, but you have to, to know to try it, and that, that is the uh, the missing link a lot of
1: the time. Yeah, I mean, having... Uh, and. You know that was a thing that like Tron has been kind of missing ever since the Eye of Ugin ban, right? Is like when you have nothing going on, and then you draw a Sylvan Scrying, you still have nothing going on. But if you have not, you know, you just have like a lot of mana, you have nothing going on. But if you have an Urza Saga that can make two constructs and then chain into another Urza Saga, like that Sylvan Scrying was a lot of value. So definitely, if you can. If you can justify it then that that is a really powerful inclusion and certainly makes anybody trying to counterspell you out of the game feel like pretty embarrassed about their plan yeah the the actual card
0: counterspell was nowhere to be seen basically outside of those ring decks and if you go back to- to pre-Lord of the Rings, uh, Spell Piss was uh, one of the big litmus tests for the format, a mm-hmm. uh, four-off in creativity, often seen in the Murktai decks as well, and that card was also basically nowhere to be found this weekend as well. So a- any of these strategies or cards which previously were a little suspicious in the face of Spell Piss or Counterspell were now poised to actually have a good weekend, assuming the other 50-something cards in your deck
1: could uh, could do their part too. Yes. to 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 sort of like put a bow on the like what should your second deck be i i think ultimately like my second deck right should be if i'm gonna like play living End when it's good and then not play it when there's too much scam around is like it should just be scam because this was a pro tour where everybody knew scam would be the best the the most played deck and everybody showed up thinking either i'm going to like Level level zero this by play scam by playing scam, level one this by playing a deck that beats scam, or level two this by playing a deck that's a little vulnerable to scam, but have the best plans that I possibly can have against scam and try to beat everything else. And then scam walked away as 20% of the field with a 54% win rate in a pro tour where good players playing on teams, prepping for this deck, like all thought that they had it under control, and it still was one of the like one of the best decks in the tournament. 54% 54% as 20% of the field, which means that it's that, that one isn't adjusted for mirrors, so it's its win rate is actually a little bit higher than that. Yeah, and this is the exact combination that got Hogak banned
0: again <laughs> back in the day, right? It's most popular deck, hard targeted by the rest of the field, and yet still is putting up a bandworthy win rate, which 54% uh may not seem like that on the surface. It is not apparent by uh, you know, 52% is fine but 55% is like a five alarm fire situation Uh, but that that has been one of the thresholds historically and yeah last time we were here Hogak was uh, you know Laydown in the Void was the most popular card in the tournament and nonetheless Hogak as the most popular deck still put up a bandwinding numbers and you can debate where a turn one fury that's a 4-4 four four, lands on the the Hogak alignment chart but regardless <laughs> that is the same formula that leads to Action being taken and we have maybe the announcement left for the year coming up next week so we will see if uh, anything
1: changes and, and there's no ley line of the void for for scam right like the, there's nothing that somebody can just really commit to showing up with like worst case you show up with scam and there's a bunch of rhinos players in the room and like yeah fine I, that's I mean, okay
0: <laughs> the card laid on in the void is decent against Scam, but it's not so good that you're going to multiply to find one, and when you do, feel good about your chances, it just disables one Tatic in the deck, and if you lead on Leyline, you could still just get beat up by Ragavan or Dathy Voidwalker or just them playing this fair game. Uh, so, uh, I think the most common plan for the Scam Mirror was to have a bunch of ley lines, but I-, I kept trying to urge my teammates to test the Mirror to see if you could find anything better, but I don't think anyone really did in the end. Um, no. So, that, that combined with the play patterns of the deck, which, whatever you call it, are pretty obviously just trying to deprive one player of agency over the outcome. It's a kind of thing which, you know, if you are a less enfranchised modern player and you go to your LGS and you play against Scam, I I don't know if you're coming back the next week. Um, yeah. And you can make those arguments about... A lot of decks and people do and you know the 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 wow fuck tron brigade had a lot of content to
1: work with this weekend right but <laughs> my tweets about that were firmly <laughs> tongue-in-cheek i find tron to be like deeply inoffensive but <laughs> but the I,
0: I think there is a real question to be had over like how long do you want the the grief scam fury scam thing to mm-hmm. to continue and how long are people going to play if that's a thing that is allowed to continue
1: yeah, definitely, and I mean, I guess we'll see what happens on on Monday. I find myself, I, I, I it looks very unlikely to me that there will be a modern ban, but uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I think maybe one glimmer
0: of hope is there is a super qualifier on Magic Online. This, I think, the Sunday of the PT. So this is the first chance for the format to push back against this new wave of information. Uh, but in a in an arena where a lot of the Better Magic Online grinders were at the Pro Tour, so they're out of commission. So the, the results are a little wonky, but uh what you see in that top eight is uh Hammer actually having this massive resurgence, mm-hmm. and that makes sense because I think it's good against all of Scam, Tron, and Rhinos uh to some degree. Uh and then Heliod uh was back in this top eight again, which <laughs> again you know makes sense. Uh Will Kruger, x whale uh in top eight here with with Hammer, no surprises there. So I think Hammer would have been a good call given how this cementer game shook out. And once you know how it's shaken out, given if you think that's going to carry forward, well, well now how it just clearly is a good choice. And so I, I think you'll see some of that cyclical stuff that any healthy format should have. But if it's just cycling between like three or four different menaces at any given point in time, well, maybe, maybe something it does have to change.
1: Sure. Uh, to return a bit to the tournament itself that you top forward and, you know, was the whole <laughs> it's hard not to just talk about like the the like minutiae of magic because that's like what you have you know that's what you delved into the whole time to prepare for this is like the tiny little things the the like ripples in the currents of the modern metagame so that's what that's what you've been thinking about for months at this point but you had the actual tournament itself happen including a 3-0 draft to kick off day two and i that's that's what you want man that's hard to 3-0 a draft at the pro tour
0: Yeah, that was a a personal bucket list item for me. Uh, It turns out others would would join it uh, before too long, but that that draft actually was pretty easy. Uh, So I opened a pack with three very good black cards, including my rare, which was uh, Call of the Ring, and Ranger's Firebrand. And whenever you see a pack like that, there is some temptation to take the really good card in the secondary color and let everyone else just fight it out over the black cards, Uh, which going into the PT, I think a lot of people... Everyone knew black was the best color or one of the deepest colors, Uh, but given that everyone knew that, it's unclear how much black you could actually expect to get. And in that first draft and here in the second draft too, black was being hard cut on both sides of me at all times. And so if my default going in was, I'm just going to try and stake a claim to black no matter what happens, then I would get lost in the scrum and have to figure something out on the fly there. So... I took Call of the Ring anyway, just because it is so much better than these other cards that you you can't justify. I've never beaten that card in Lord of the Rings draft. I'm like 0-7
1: against it or something.
0: One of the best rares in the entire set, and even though it it suffers from that issue of just decreased access to Tempt cards when everyone's fighting over them, it just gets you to Chapter 4 by itself, so you don't even care a lot of the time. (laughs) Um, And I think you'll gladly splash that card in a lot of decks, and... If I end up in green, which I was perfectly willing to do, then green is really good at splashing uh, some of those bombs like that. As it turns out, my uh, pack pick two, I get past uh, Horses of the Brunin, so very good blue uncommon, and I'm happy to be in Demir or in Izzet or some of these other blue color pairs, but I also get past Radagast. So if for people who haven't drafted this format, Radagast is completely messed up, one of the <laughs> best rares in the entire set, easily the best green card, but far and away the best green card, and... For the people early on who said that green is unplayable in this format and we're never going to draft green, this is a card that would get thrown back at them in those hypotheticals of, oh, well, what if you open Radagas? And it turns out someone did open Radagas and they really didn't want to be in green, so they passed it to me. And so to me, I mean, it's the best card in the pack, so I should be taking it. And also it's a clear sign that every good green card that gets opened at the table is going to make its way <laughs> around right. to me. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And even though... Most of my Golgari decks want to be the, the deepness of black mixed with the openness of green because no one wants to draft it. Um, in this case, I knew black would be cut, and that was fine because I was getting every good green card. So I was mostly mono green, splashing the good Golgari gold cards I was getting, like uh, Old Man Willow, Rise of the Witch King and then also some of the, the good black cards as well. I opened Andrew in my second pack, so like maybe the best actual rare in the set, Yeesh. so that helped as well. Uh, so really, I, I didn't have to do much to, to get a three out of the seat, but uh, I,
1: you, you take those regardless, you know? You can't top eight a Pro Tour without having a little bit of, something has to go your way a couple of times over the weekend. It's, it's just, you know, you, there's no reason to like, feel feel guilty about that. Nobody's ever won a Pro Tour without getting lucky
0: no and i i still had some interesting choices in deck building which i messed up i I could have built my deck even better had enough playables that i could reconfigure in sideboarding a lot so that was another layer of decision making that came in and then also i did have to beat a a very good black red deck with uh the witch king in the finals and so on against a good player so i you know i they made me work for it a little bit but uh, i i had the tools to get it done and uh you know now I just had to for one another modern
1: league and uh we, we see what <laughs> happened well, yeah and we see what happens is probably I don't know if that that sentence like perfectly encapsulates it or is just not enough to like <laughs> encompass the the sweat at the end of the tournament you won your winning in to ninth place and were uh locked locked for ninth at the end of the Swiss I, I would say like pretty hard locked.
0: Yeah, so I, I had done the math with Eduardo before the round and I'd, I'd misunderstood some part of what he said. So what he said was, well, you're playing for top eight if one of these matches above you. So I think it was uh, my two teammates, uh, Pivo versus uh, Calcano. If if Calc wins, well, now you're playing for ninth because he was lower in the scrum and would have to win to make it up. So given that, I, I mistakenly thought I could be playing for... Top eight, but was not taking anything for granted. After I won, I come out and everyone tells me, "Yeah, you were playing for ninth." Uh, and at that point, I was actually at peace with that, and I went around telling everyone that I got ninth and uh, soaking up the commiserations slash congratulations uh, split cards that they all offered me, um, <laughs> and then. You know the, the the strangest twist of the weekend happened yet, and the match in the feature match area, which I am rooting to end because I just want to get out of just here. Just want Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, drags on indefinitely uh, and goes to a draw, which creates this space in the top eight for me, which I didn't realise that those were the stakes at the time, and I didn't quite believe when people came rushing up to me to tell me what was going on there. that There was actually a great shot that the coverage took of me once i'm behind the rope in the feature match area again uh simon nielsen who i mean was dominant player at this point great guy very glad to have him in the top eight with me uh good friend he pulls out the melee standings and shows me like no you are here this just updated you are in eighth <laughs> and they just they captured my reaction to that which uh they they did very well and i honestly the the whole uh uh, i haven't got a chance to watch a lot of it yet but what i did see you can still debate like what approach should they be taking who should the target audience be but just in terms of raw production value just phenomenal i think the, the best i've ever seen from one of the the pt broadcasts and that goes for both the the matches the on-screen stuff and then also the extra like short videos and uh kind of uh
1: marketing material yeah. they did as well i i think they really they hit the ground running with the first pt back and that one came out the gate with the densest amount of magic that i've seen certainly in any pro tour but probably really in almost any coverage that i've mm. seen it, match after match like not way less downtime than other tournament coverage and and you know just a good job of recording enough matches that they can get coverage on and then each pro tour so far like that like you know it just better this time and uh i i have obviously there's always room for improvement but I agree completely. Like, they've done a good job. The one thing that was a pretty big bummer here is uh, that match between Alex Hain and Kosaka. They did not cut away when the the two of them were trying to, you know, each trying to convince the other one to scoop. And uh, we just get to watch, like, gesturing at cards and, like, life totals and animated discussion for about five minutes which i I've, i found to be very odd because there is no worse moment in all of competitive magic than trying to get your opponent to scoop to you yeah it, it's not
0: fun to watch especially if you can't hear what's being said or what's not being said it's also it's tough to watch if for a lot of people it's uh, the most cringe part of the broadcast and i do use that word advisedly here um and also For the coverage themselves, they can't really talk about what the stakes are or what the implicit or explicit understanding is. Like they understandably don't want to acknowledge that. And so you're Mm -hmm. left with everyone watching something where they can't guide us through it or really let us listen in on what's going on. And also it's effectively just dead air at that point. So I, I don't know what the upside is. You know, cut back to the booth. I, I don't either. Cut to more magic. They, they, <laughs> they did that thing they do for the last round where they, they have the four uh, feature matches kind of in stereo. And then they collapse into one of them. So they have magic that they've recorded that they can show us. Um, and yet we just get stuck on this instead. So just just do anything else. Tell us what happened afterwards. And then tell us what that means for people like me.
1: Right. And, and I mean, and I was sitting there watching them do this. And I didn't understand the implications of what this potential draw meant for you because I was specifically not paying attention. I didn't know what the outcome of your match was because I didn't know if they were going to put it on camera and I didn't want to spoil it for myself because I am watching this as entertainment as well as, you know, reading for my friends. I was sitting there like, why are we watching this? Why are we not going to Dom's potential win-in match? Like, also, we have not seen very much amulet. Like, we've seen so much Rakdos and Tron. Like, can we please watch just something? We watched multiple Tron mirrors in the Swiss, uh, by the way, which uh, most of which were completely avoidable. But Here's the thing. I think that's good because
0: the way the Tron mirror goes is either one player has turn three B- big con or something and it is over in a few minutes or uh it gets into this very weird like mind-melting mirror where neither deck is really functioning but you have to find a way to win right. anyway and then sometimes one person just top decks the missing tron piece and just bursts out of the gates out of nowhere so I-, I actually think the tron mirror is good content as weird as that sounds is that too hot of a
1: take I don't disagree. Most of the matches, like I think we saw like three three Tron mirrors during the Swiss or maybe four. I think that like the the top eight Tron mirror was, was fantastic. Most of the Swiss ones were decided on turn three, like just very obvious what was going to happen. And, and I just like looked at Jarvis after it and was like, okay, well, I guess that was technically Magic the Gathering. And then we moved on to another match.
0: Yeah, as it turns out, my my winning in, in uh, air quotes, was not actually that exciting at all. Uh, I just had a good draw on the play game one, and then game two, my my Yorkmouth opponent Mulligan to four, and obviously I'm chanting in my head, four, 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 three, 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 and uh, doing my best <laughs> not to show any glimmer of that to him for sportsmanship reasons, right, but, right. you know. Uh, th- there are times where you want to play a really intricate, difficult match against a tough opponent, and then there are times where you'll just take what you can get, and this was <laughs> certainly one of those... Uh, a lot of times uh, because yeah. I didn't know the exact stakes going in, but looking at it after the fact, when you think about, uh, I, I just blanked on the world's implications for uh, for starters, but thinking about uh, the difference between win and top eight, win and get ninth, and then lose and not even be in top 16, that top 16 pay card, if people don't know, so you, you get a few thousand dollars more just uh, up front, but then also you get the, the foil promos for the event that only go to the top 16 and for this event you not only get the foil jace promo you get the foil gandalf promo which uh there are only going to be 16 of these because there's not going to be another proto lord of the rings in the near future uh so those are worth uh, a pretty penny uh let me tell you so that that match when you think about worlds pt invites uh the the upfront payout and then implied payout like it, it that is a that's easily a five-figure match of magic highest stakes i've ever played for and maybe will ever play for so to have that be a bloodbath was actually pretty
1: refreshing <laughs> as it turns out <laughs> i don't want to have to think in this one and actually so that's one thing that i and and maybe this is something that applies more to your top eight matches i know that you have found a level of uh, frustration with yourself in the past in some of these like high leverage matches where you you feel like you haven't played to the best of your ability, and and something just like wasn't quite connecting for you. Do you think that you have? You know gotten over that a little bit do you think that it was helped by playing a deck that you're so familiar with because i certainly didn't like watch any of your top eight matches and be like man dom is really just not not doing it this time so i I, i'm curious to see like how you felt about those matches
0: i didn't really feel any nerves in the top eight or in the the feature match area i think part of that is even though i know that this is being broadcast to, to thousands of people the fact that they're not there means they're out of sight and out of mind, whereas if I'm in the the PT play area itself and there's dozens of people crowding around watching me and it's the end of the round, that's when I actually feel it because it's, it's there to be felt, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, those eyes right there like make a huge... I, I agree completely, yeah. yeah.
0: So there's that. I, I was not happy with myself over my own standard of play over the weekend, uh, so it, it is jarring to at once have the like big breakout finish of your career... And also have your eyes open to just how badly you're playing, or just how much further there is to go. At the same time, I I wonder if some of that is contextual because we haven't touched on the the heat situation in the building yet, or uh, just mm. you know I am not I, I'm someone who gets like quite flustered and stuff while I'm traveling, like I don't eat well and so on. So I part of me would have every GP be in Toronto or something rather than Barcelona, but. Um, <laughs> i didn't cope with the conditions well and i wonder if that was part of it but yeah i thought my play was pretty sloppy and there was actually a moment in my top eight match against javier where i so i'm up two to zero, and then game three i make what i think is a pretty big mistake in retrospect and see it almost immediately after it's too late to do anything about it um <laughs> have to try and keep things together for that game i lose that game and then game four is looking pretty dicey and at that point i'm thinking but well, if i lose this now and is... i then go on to lose game 5 i'm always going to wonder what what could have been um but i don't know for the most part i i didn't really feel that the feature match knows at all um and gotcha i wouldn't say i was like in the zone for the feature match either necessarily but i, I don't know i just felt
1: like i was kind of in my element the heat thing is i you know i was slightly aware of the heat thing i didn't really know what was going on uh, my the funniest thing that i have heard about this is i was listening to nasif's podcast today and uh his co-host asked him about the heat situation he was like yeah i noticed you know like everybody had their sleeves rolled up it, it looked kind of warm in there and nasif was like no nah, i mean it wasn't that bad i mean Sauce got heat stroke but like other than that it wasn't that bad in there and i was like wait hold on just one one second here. yeah my my canadian
0: friend marcus just ended up in an ambulance uh, after he, he played the, the last PT in that same venue and said, yeah, this was also a massive issue at that time as well, and we've just learned nothing to, to hedge against that uh, since then. So I, I think some people Ugh. are confusing everyone was subject to the same conditions, which was true, with everyone acts the same way or reacts the same way to those conditions, which is certainly not true. And so I know mm-hmm. uh, Autumn, for example, was really feeling the effects of the heat. And the fact that we all had to suffer under that doesn't mean that what they were feeling was any less of an issue for them, right? Um, for my part, right. I-, I had gone to the venue on the Thursday, the day before, to record one of those mini uh, deck intro segments. And while I was there, I was like, oh, this is a little stuffy. And they said, yeah, the AC's broken, but we're working on that. We're going to get it fixed for oh. tomorrow. And so I figured... Yeah, the AC is going to be on blast all day. I'm someone who, if I'm feeling cold, like that's a, like that cold, that's as bad to me as feeling that hot. And also, if they're overcrediting for today, then it might be actually pretty chilly in the venue. So I overdress a bit. I was wearing just a long sleeve shirt, long pants, and so on. And so when I turn up on Friday, and in fact, it has not been fixed, and it's, the venue is just a furnace for the, the nine hours that I'm trapped there, yeah, that was not so good. And I, I didn't consciously feel it having an effect on things, but it would not shock me if removed from that environment i would not be making some of the, the sloppy plays that i did well they didn't
1: bite you too hard at least
0: yeah i was able to to rally in the end but uh i mean when i start 0 and two in part because i'm spewing mm-hmm. left and right turns out that has an effect on your
1: tiebreakers and those can have an effect in theory on your uh on your results down the line yeah but you know mir- miracle on ice or miracle on broken ac or whatever Squeak in! I, 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 I can't tell you how excited I was to to see that. Like, I didn't, I didn't quite understand the implications of that match, and then realized, like, after I real, after I saw, okay, well, we're not gonna get to see Dom's match this round. I guess I'll go check the standings and saw that, yeah, Dom Harvey in eighth place, and I that made me feel so good, and I. I'm just like so glad that that you got there and that I get to talk to you about it. Like, yeah,
0: it's crazy because I mean, for me as someone who I've played Magic for almost twenty years, and since the day I started, I've been devouring all of the Pro Tour coverage and old tournament reports and all of the competitive stuff that I could. Like, it's it's been like an aspiration, but always felt like a very distant one. I've seen other people come up and have that sudden success, and. Had some amount of jealousy, but also been happy for them at the same time and, and tried to turn that into something productive. So I've, I've mentioned before how, you know, I, I've i known Autumn Slash Rain for longer than basically anyone in the scene at this point, just because we were from the same city in England playing a F, uh, Tuesday Night Magic together. And so watching them go from like that initial breakout success at their first PT to winning a PT to just like regularly being at the top at the PT. It's like, okay... I don't know if I'm capable of this, but it's something to aspire to. And I have this template in my face for how that is possible. I felt going in, like I wasn't at the level where I could expect it to happen anytime soon. Like I would need to have some more bites at the apple. Uh, I'm not Simon who said that he he brought a shirt with him to wear on Sunday because he felt like it was that likely. Like I I could not have that level of confidence. Um, (laughs) And he he justifiably can at this point, which I, I love for him. But for me, it was, it's a bot out of the blue, but now it's a chance to keep competing at that level and try to prove that it wasn't a fluke and try to, uh, you know, get myself to the point where I can be maybe not at the top like that, but at least,
1: you know, someone you're not surprised to see do it again. Yeah. And I mean, this is a hell of a top eight to start that like part of your career in, Uh, you know, we, we kind of have, people from like each point of the magic competitive journey like we have kai as the absolute old guard coming back like top eighting another Mm. pro tour 12th pro tour incredible javier and simon both coming straight off of another like like two two top eights in a row for both of them just at, at the absolute height of their powers crushing it the ultimate winner of the pro tour this is this was Jake's first pro tour, and he took it down. And you know, then and 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 then we've got a few players who have you know you have played several pro tours, and, and this is kind of your your first taste of that. Certainly, your first taste of that Sunday stage, but that that like really high level of success. I I don't know. This was kind of a beautiful top eight. Yeah, you really
0: had the full range of stories on display. So, Jake, you know, winning his first PT on his birthday and getting to do the the wife guy flex on the entire gaming community in the process from the top eight stage. Like, it doesn't get better than that, right? And, like, I I do wonder for those people sometimes, because I know Alden went through this as well, of, like, when your first is your breakout, how do you calibrate your expectations for the next ones? But sure, from what I have seen of Jake, like, he has a good head on his shoulders. I think he will, like, make the most of that opportunity and not, like, get too wrapped up in that, if that makes sense. And then, yeah, you have both i think some of the best players in the game right now like the way that simon has leveled up during covid from like a perennial gold pro to now just one of the best in the world has really been inspiring to watch and then javier as well who i mean he was he was the world champion at that point but since then has also put together this hall of fame resume if that's everything again and also just the nicest guy right a perfect ambassador for the game really helped to put me at ease in our feature match even though it was uh unfortunate pairing for him and also a high stakes match for him uh as well and then yeah i mean uh, you have like my story which is somewhere in between there and kai who i mean there were so many Mm -hmm. historical parallels that rack up like you know kai won a pt in barcelona in 2001 or kai now is going to uh, pt chicago and uh, kai like won the last pt that was in chicago or something also 20 years ago like (laughs) all that stuff as well but you know if you heard gone back and told me five or ten years ago who was just as obsessed with magic but uh had not had a taste of success yet and was in a much just worse place otherwise that yeah you're gonna have your arm around kai in a pt top 8 photo like that was that that would be a pretty nice omen to look forward to
1: Yeah, for sure. I am fortunate enough. I I reached out to Jake actually just today Hmm. and asked if he wanted to hang out and, you know, do a stream, like coach me through some, some Rakdos matches and stuff. So we'll, we'll be doing that on Monday, but I am also hoping to get you on to do, I I don't know, some combination of let's play some amulet matches and let's look at some of your matches from the the tournament. And I think that, you know, I, I, I am fortunate to be in a spot where like. And th- this is what I like doing, right? Like, I love playing magic. I love winning matches. I will never be as good at winning matches as uh some of the people that i know including you are and i'm very okay with that because even more than actually playing the matches is just i love talking about magic so much Mm. and so this is part of like what i am trying to do now is just like grab people like you and jake and share share a platform and try to ask good questions and get you up there and and do some streams and and you know put that kind of content out that's just like here is some high level competitive content where we are focusing on like what up to the minute kind of modern stuff or pioneer stuff or whatever is actually relevant to people and i am fortunate enough to be in a position where i now you know know people who will who are willing to help me out with that sort of thing, and I'm 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 really excited to do this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, well, I'm excited to do as much of it with you as you'll you have me on for. But nice. I, I think also, and you can probably testify to some of this. The way that I came up when I did, where I, like, if you go and look at my Elo project or whatever, my my <laughs> win rate at GPS is woefully bad. Like, I, I'm not I'm not convinced it's north of fifty percent. Um, I don't know why, but. Uh, so I, I never had some, like, GP top 8 out of nowhere or something that put me on the map. And also had just about, like, broken even, treading water at my PTs in the past. And so on the official branch of Organized Play, I really had nothing I could point to. Like, all, all of my, my resume was the these one-offs, like the Mana Traders thing or, or, or other stuff, but also the SEG stuff, which I'm, I'm proud of, and I'm very glad I did it, and I, I wish, wish I had it back. But also that was viewed i think to some extent fairly by a lot of the community as like the the junior varsity leagues to some extent and Mm so okay yeah you're you're a big fish in a small pond but then you're going to get swallowed up by the sharks when once you get to this next level and so i kind of wanted something in this realm that i can point to and say okay yeah it's just one result but it is still a result right like i for sure a- and this is a very good result <laughs> to,
1: to have to point to now yeah i i believe your your position on the misplaced ginger scale mm. you went up like eight eight points or something like that i maybe <laughs> i got that number wrong but a significant I- increase in your position on the misplaced ginger scale yes I- and
0: look i i mean i understand that on some level i'm not a different player than i was this time last week and that right. it is ultimately one tournament where i had a lot of things go my way it's not every PT is going to be one where I'm going to have got to play my favorite deck for eight years, right? And uh, I will say, too, that outside of that match against Javier, which is just our respective luck decks kind of dueling against each other, I didn't have to go through a lot of the elites to get there. You know, I, I breathed a sigh of relief when I looked at uh, my draft pods, right? But I, I also want to put up some numbers in a pot of death at some point right that, that is the point of this is to get to play against the best and so I, I have won myself more chances to do that now and i welcome those and world is in six weeks oh my god uh but uh you know that that is something missing still so uh excited to
1: take that off the list as well hopefully yeah i uh you know looking through jake's day two his draft rounds day two played against calcano into greg orange into kai so you know that's <laughs> that, that that's something that sometimes happens to you and i think you you generally don't want it to but you have to be ready when it does yeah like I, i'm thrilled to be on the stage with kai but
0: i want to play against kai now and ideally beat him but either way learn something uh yeah. that i can take away
1: hopefully well you got plenty more time you're uh qualified for worlds you're qualified for i don't know how i don't understand I- how uh <laughs> pro tour qualifications work from here but a couple right yeah it's a bit one two
0: it's a bit of an opaque system and we are also kind of in back in that stage where op knowledge is kept up by one guy with a spreadsheet but and i had to learn all of this very quickly <laughs> because it had no implications for me until this week but my understanding is with this finish i have in, I've formally uh, got two PT invites and effectively got the third two with the way that AMP works, uh, the adjusted match points. Uh, so I am mm. on the train now. As as I used to say, I'm a fake gold pro or whatever the equivalent is. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I have I, I have all of that queued up now. Um, I, after this tournament, I was going to be scaling things back a little bit anyway, even if I happened to qualify for Chicago, because that's that's a few months away and I, I needed some time to just recalibrate and focus on other things and gonna to have to uh kick that away until after worlds now but i think i will use that off season fairly well but once i do i'm now back in the saddle and have a whole year of professional magic to look forward to and yeah as someone who you know does a lot of uh, talking about magic and writing about it and uh coaching as well and there was always this little sense of like am i qualified to do this one finish doesn't officially change any of that but it's at least you know. It's a day. Yeah, point. Yeah,
1: some sense of confidence that, you know, I, I'm here for the right reasons. Yep. I mean, I, I could have told you that, but <laughs> this is nice supporting evidence as well. Yeah. I feel like we've covered pretty much everything that I wanted to hit on. You know, there, there's certainly things about, like, what's the metagame going to look like going forward? But I feel like we actually, like, kind of, you know at least implicitly talked about that some so i mean this is this is your time anything any particular memories from the weekend any anything you want to shout out uh anything that you're thinking of that i haven't had a chance to ask you about yet
0: it, it was just a great weekend overall and a great time um so just getting to test with uh, my team and you know, under zen's leadership like all of that was just wonderful and even if uh the tournament hadn't gone well just those days at the house and so on and like getting to cheer on uh the guys who did do well would have been uh, an amazing memory just seeing the outpouring of support when uh, i was ninth but then oh shit no i'm not i'm actually eighth. like that <laughs> that was really heartwarming to see uh gonna ride on that glow for for a while just yeah everything about that experience uh i i got to see people who i last saw before i moved from the uk and you know i i and my life have changed a lot since then so it was nice to to reconnect with some of them as well uh just everything about the weekend in like an extracurricular sense just helped make it as special as it was too so yeah gonna remember this funny for for a very long time
1: yeah and doesn't hurt that barcelona is a hell of a city oh yeah any particular like what's your if you had to pick like a favorite thing about barcelona itself what what stood out to you over the weekend or i guess a couple of weeks
0: well i've been there i think this is my fourth time and each time under like pretty different circumstances uh and i i'm always keen to go back and i seek out chances to go back and so when i lost the last round of the uh, the minneapolis pt to not requalify, yeah it's starting to lose but it's starting that i wasn't going to go to barcelona to get to play modern or so i thought mm. in particular i like i, I wanted this one I, I wanted this pt experience before i stopped you know trying as hard to, to get there uh and Barcelona is, it is it's it's a kind of city which I'm jealous of the people who live there and who feel at home there because at some point I'm not sure if I could have done and living there I think is still off the table for now but I I'm glad that I kind of vibe with the city more because it's, it's such a beautiful place like it has that rich history but also just the places there are a sight to behold like the you know some of the parks some of the monuments uh the there's that entire stretch from the the like the kind of main space at plaza hispania up to where the art museum is past the magic fountain which is like every time i just spend hours wandering up and down there and exploring the the gardens at the side and it's just a
1: it's a wonderful place to just lose yourself in and and marvel at i i i found that garden i found those gardens by accident yeah when i just like went on a run from my hostel the 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 one time i was in barcelona and then i just was there and there were all these like statues and pavilions and stuff and i had no idea where i like was going to end up and just it yeah it's it's there's something really magical about it yeah it's amazing i've been in that location
0: where while the the light show at the magic fountain has been happening which Mm. sadly off the off uh off the table at this point but if if that ever comes back i mean find any excuse to go and check that (laughs) out uh it it does live up to the name uh i was there on pride weekend once where that uh, like that entire promenade was just filled with people like dancing and raving and having a great time and that was just like the energy there was unparalleled yeah i mean the, the whole thing is is great the let's see other favorites uh parkler Ciudadella, where they have the it's not really i don't, don't know what you call it it's not a waterfall but it's like a water ornament or w- whatever that is like that that area is just uh, absolutely beautiful um and then just general stuff like there's the, the public transit is both cheap and clean and there's so much of it that if you're dumb like me and didn't download like a, a map or something in advance, you can very easily get confused and end up <laughs> going the wrong way. But once you figure out what you're doing and bypass that skill issue, like just getting around the city is much easier than it is in basically anywhere else that I've been to in the past.
1: It is, yeah. The The city planning is really nice and, and you can just actually get places without having to try try that hard. Yeah, just a, just a
0: wonderful place. And obviously different as a tourist than uh if you're someone who lives there and you know all the usual disclaimers but for someone who experienced it the way i do i
1: was always glad to do so and really hope i get to again yeah a nice opportunity and play the pro tour see the world is is in your future at least for a little while guaranteed so that's pretty nice
0: yeah which uh is something like i i resign myself to the fact that was not going to happen and now it just suddenly has and I don't know how ready I am, but I will, it is going to be a fun ride at least. And I hope I will learn a lot along the way. And if something like this happens again, then, then great.
1: Yeah, I cannot wait to see more of that. But I think that we have babbled on for long enough. So I appreciate, I, I, I'm i sure that our audience is into this. So I, I am happy to, that we ran a little bit long. But unless you have anything else in particular, I'll go ahead and close out the show. Yeah, let, let's do it great uh thanks everybody for listening really really appreciate your time dom thank you so much for being here i i like can't tell you how much i you you got a lot of stuff going on right now and i know that you like just got back home so i i do like really appreciate this
0: yeah i don't know if i'm a professional magic player now but i guess i am still a content creator so yeah any chance to uh get my nose back to that grindstone i'll uh, gladly take you up on
1: Yes. Awesome. I'm doing some streams. We'll have some guests, including Dom. So definitely check those out. Uh, Dom, I, I know you have several places that people can find your content. I highly recommend your podcast with Ari. If anybody who listens to this podcast doesn't already listen to Dominaria's judgment, I mean, that would be kind of shocking to me, but I know you've, you've also still got one, one of the few employed, uh, magic writers these days. Uh, where else should people look for your stuff? yeah uh, flying the flag by myself over at uh SCG every week
0: uh and you can see me uh posting and posting through it whatever it happens to be uh on i'm just gonna call it twitter uh it's at twitter.com slash dom so uh find lots of magic and all nonsense uh, over there uh, at any given time awesome
1: uh thanks everyone have a great week